So Psalm 11 and verse 1, let us hear God's word. Praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. The works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. His work is honorable and glorious, and his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He has given food to those who fear him. He will ever be mindful of his covenant. He has declared to his people the power of his works and giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are verity and justice. All his precepts are sure. They stand forever and ever and are done in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. The grass withers, the flower fades, for the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Now, as we uh, begin here today, uh, I want to ask you a a basic question. We've been looking here at uh, book five, and the theme of the book here is uh, primarily praising our God. Uh, God had brought his people back from exile to the promised land, and there is this forward look to the coming of the Messiah, and so Psalms 107 and 108 emphasize praise, and now we have started this section, Psalms 111 to 117, that are all about praise. We have hallelujah at the beginning or end of, of these psalms. So the question then simply is, with this emphasis on our worship, with this emphasis on praising God, how has your worship improved? In these last couple months or so, as we have been focusing on this theme, and especially here in Psalm 111, is your worship improving? Obviously it must. This is a command that we have been given. We must obey this command to praise our God. Our tendency, of course, is to be distracted. Our tendency, of course, is to use excuses not to worship the God who has not only made all things and rules over all things, but especially has redeemed us. This is the command we are given. So how are we doing with it? Are we obeying? Not just now, not just here as we gather together, but what about during the week, on your own, with your families? How about even in the everyday things, as we go to work or school or as we're cleaning the house, or now it's shoveling snow. Um, Are you praising your God in all of these different things? This is the purpose. We are to improve upon our worship. So with this in mind, then, we um, started here in Psalm 111, looking at verse 1, developing that idea, expanding upon the idea I just talked about. We spent a whole sermon looking at verse 1, looking at the term hallelujah, looking at the ideas in verse 1 in terms of this call to worship. And that's really what it is in verse 1. And so when I stand up and call us to worship at the beginning of a service, this is a command. We must obey it. And if we don't, we're being foolish. Well, then, last time... 
we started uh, the content of the psalm, psalms, uh, or excuse me, verses two to six we looked at last time. And we're, we're looking at the content of our worship, the object of our worship, and that, of course, is God ultimately. The key word that we see here is the word works. See it in verse six, see it, excuse me, verse two, and then in verse six. And then we see it again here in verse seven and the antecedent of them in verse 10 refers us back to that. We'll see more of that later. Now, we also have uh, the question then, what does works mean? Because we can apply it to God's works of creation. We can apply it to God's works of providence. But because of verse 9 especially, and then the other hints and clues, the emphasis here is on redemption. And so the Exodus in particular, the food there in verse 5, would it refer to the manna? Uh, the conquest is alluded to in verse 6. And then, of course, the covenant here, uh, that would emphasize the covenant of Moses. You see that in verse 5, and we'll see it again here in verse 9. The remembrance in verse 4 would be the Passover meal. And so this is the, the, what is alluded to in these different places. Okay. Now, <clears throat> all of this then is what the Old Testament saint would think of. But now, here on this side of the cross, we not only think of the Exodus, but then we think of course, of Christ's coming and uh, the work that he has accomplished, the redemption that has been sent to us. And so we praise our God for it. The whole purpose here, as we look at each line, is to say this is why we should praise our God. This is some of the content of our praise. All right. Now, if you look at your handout for Psalm 11, and you turn to the back side, as I've done here for the Psalms, I've given you some outlines, and each one of them has uh, some, some helpful ideas for it. Uh, as I mentioned last time, basically I'm following the third one here. Okay? And so we started with verse 1, the call to worship. Then we have verses 2 to 6, we looked at last time, and now here today, verses 7 to 10. Okay? So again, if you look at verse 7, you see the word works at the beginning of the verse. And then if you look at verse 10, that second line, the last word is them. What's the antecedent of them? Well, it's back to works and also precepts in verse 7. So this is why uh, we put it together. All right, now, let's read verse 7. Using my translation here, again, trying to bring out a more literal translation of the Hebrew so we can see how it fits together a little bit better. The works of his hands are truth and justice. Being reliable are all of his precepts. All right. Now, as I've mentioned here, verses 1 to 8 have two lines in each verse. Verses 9 and 10 have three lines. But all of them, all the different lines, have either three or four words in, in the Hebrew. So here in verse 7, the first line has four words in Hebrew, and the second line has three. So again, just showing you some of the creativity here. Now, the other main poetic element we have is, of course, this is an acrostic. So it's taking each successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and each line begins with that successive letter. And so we've looked so far at a little more than half of the Hebrew alphabet. And so we come now here in verse 7 to the next letter, which is mem. So that's your M sound. And as I mentioned last time, notice I've made those letters a little bit bigger so you can see them. 
uh, there on your handout. So that's the M letter. And we translate it, the works of his hands are truth and justice. All right, now, let me say what I just repeated uh, from last week, reviewed from last week. And as I mentioned last week, the word here for works can mean creation. It can mean providence. But the emphasis here is on redemption. Again, verse 9 especially shows us that. All right. So his works of redemption especially are truth and justice. Now, you'll notice that the second line of verse 7 and then verse 8 all begin the same way. Being reliable are all of his precepts. Being unshakable forever and ever and being done in truth and they are upright. All three of those lines begin with a passive participle. So I translated it this way to show that connection. Okay. Notice that the second line of verse 7 begins with the Hebrew letter noon, and that's your N sound. The one in verse 8 begins with the psalmic, that's your S sound. And the, one, the second line of verse 8 begins with ayin, that's a guttural uh, in the Hebrew we call it. All right, so. Notice then, this is developing the idea of works. God's works are reliable. God's works are unshakable. God's works are done in truth. But what works are we talking about? Well, in this case, notice that the second line of verse 7 gives us some direction. The works of his precepts in particular. Okay. So the overall idea is redemption. <clears throat> Okay. We talk about the Exodus here. We talk about God bringing Israel out of Egypt. We talk about going through the Red Sea. We talk about giving them the manna. But here now, the emphasis is coming to Mount Sinai and receiving the law, the precepts of God. Okay. So then, in Exodus 20, obviously, God spoke and gave them the Ten Commandments. Those are his precepts here. Uh, but it's not just that. Remember that in chapters 20 to 23 in Exodus, not only has the, the Ten Commandments, but has the Book of the Covenant, as we call it. And then remember in chapters 25 and following, we have all the precepts in regard to the tabernacle. Okay. Remember Moses had the two tablets, then he broke them because of the golden calf, and they had two tablets again. So you know, all, this is what we're talking about. Okay, the works of his hands, in particular, you might say the work of his finger, okay, writing the Ten Commandments down, but all these precepts that God gave to Moses, they are truth, they are justice, reliable, unshakable, done in truth, upright. This is what we're talking about. Okay? So all of God's commands, all of his laws, all of his instructions, all of his directions, they are truth. They are reliable. Now notice there on some of my description after verse 8. Uh, notice that the word for works and the word for done come from the same root. The word for reliable and the word for truth found in verses 7 and 8. Um, they come from the same uh, word in the Hebrew. And so it's clearly putting all of this together. Okay. And so... God did his truth reliably, did his commands faithfully. Now, as for this word truth, uh, this is the Hebrew word emeth, 
I've, I've mentioned this term at, at different times. It's one of those key covenant terms that uh, God wants us to understand. And this, uh, it, it isn't just truth versus error, but it includes reliability. It includes truthfulness, faithfulness. Notice how the New King James translates the word verity. And that's what we mean, veritas, the Latin word, right? We, it, it has the idea of truth and, and faithfulness, truthfulness. God's laws are that way. They're not lies. They're not false. Okay. Notice then the second word there in verse 7 is truth and justice. This is the Hebrew word mishpat. I have used that term, especially when we looked at Exodus, a key legal term. They are filled with justice, integrity, you might say, rightness. And notice the adjective at the end of verse 8. They are upright, not falling over. They are upright, just, without error. You might say balanced, or maybe think of a plumb line. This is what God's law is like. Okay. Now compare that to human laws. God's laws are unshakable. They are forever and ever. They are reliable. But human laws? Now, human laws that are based on God's law can be pretty good. But we live in a culture now where we see less and less and less of that, don't we? Okay. Human laws. We just had an election recently. I don't trust the result. Because I don't trust the people who are involved. Hey, you could go back to the, the whole issue of the vaccine or the shutdowns and so forth. These are human laws. Oh, it, was, it was the end of the world. You had to have the vaccine. You had to have the shutdown. And now people are winning lawsuits because they lost their job because they wouldn't get the vaccine. The laws have now changed okay, in just a matter of, of months and a couple of years. Um, those are just a couple examples. Okay. But human laws show favoritism. Moderna and Pfizer have made a lot of money. Human laws are selfish. They are harmful. They change. They contradict. Not God's laws. The contrast is so stark. God's laws are truth. They're reliable. They don't change. They're unshakable. They're upright. And all these terms here. Praise God for this. Okay. Praise God for this. I, I don't praise our human lawgivers. They change all the time. I have no faith in them. But I have faith in God. I praise him for his law. Now, <clears throat> let me add this point. Some of you might be thinking, well, wait, wait a second. God's law changed when we came to the New Testament, right? We don't have to keep the sacrifices anymore, right? We don't have to keep the food laws and so forth. God's law changed. It is not unshakable forever and ever. Well, okay, fair point. Uh, there are some changes, but think of it like this, though. The kind of surface changed, but not the substance. The idea of atonement has not changed. There still must be a substitute who is perfect in our place. There still must be a substitute that dies in our place. In the Old Testament, that was manifested through the sacrifices. In the New Testament, it's Christ. 
The laws of atonement have not changed. The outward application of those laws have changed. And that's because Christ has come. We don't need the sacrifices anymore. But the laws of atonement are still the same. Those are unshakable. Those are forever and ever. You say, well, that's kind of an easy one, right? Okay, well, what about the clean and unclean laws? What about the food laws? Those have changed, right? Maybe some of you had bacon with your eggs this morning or sausage or something like that. Maybe some of you went out to Red Lobster as you're trying to buy Christmas presents or, you know, whatever. We're allowed to do those things now, right? Because these laws have changed. But what's the principle underlying those laws? We are to be holy in everything we do, including what we eat, what we wear. Now, I can wear a mixed fabric now, but I'm still to be holy in my dress, the things that I wear. Yes, I, we just had a pig butcher, butchered here recently. Hey, that's okay. We're allowed to do that now, but I still must be holy in the things that I eat. I must do it in a way that honors the Lord. So, so the outward kind of the, the surface has changed, but the substance has not. So just as a brief aside on this point, okay, some will say, well, God's law has changed. We don't need the Old Testament anymore and so on and so forth. Well, no, not really. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And in fulfilling it, some of the outward forms have changed, but the substance is still there. And this is why we praise our God. He hasn't changed his mind. Like a human lawgiver. Things have changed now that Christ has come. At least in some ways. So again, as, as we could spend a lot of time talking about God's law, remember the point here. We are being told, commanded to worship. Let's worship our God for the works of his law. That's why we sung the hymn we did here just a little bit ago. All right, well, let's keep going then. Verse 9. A redemption he sent to his people. He commanded forever his covenant. Holy and one who is feared is his name. All right, well, we move now from two lines per verse to three lines here in verses 9 and 10. And that way you can get the 22 Hebrew letters here in 10 verses. Um, Notice that all three of these lines have three words apiece in the Hebrew. So again, following that that pattern, that uh, poetical uh, structure. Now, the first line begins with the Hebrew letter pe. So this is your P sound. You can have a a soft P, a PH or an F sound as well. Uh, The word here is redemption, a redemption he sent to his people. Now, I've been using this verse all the way along to help us understand what the emphasis of the psalm is. Yes, let's praise God for creating all things. Let's praise God for ruling over all things. But our focus here is praising God for the redemption that he sent. And God certainly did this. He sent redemption to his people Israel while they were in Egypt. He brought them out of their bondage, redeeming them, setting them free, releasing them. And so here then uh, we come to this term uh, that I've been alluding to all along. Now, let me bring in this point now. 
Some of you may be saying, well, you know, it doesn't say he redeemed them from Egypt. It doesn't say in verse 5 the food was manna. Hey, <coughs> excuse me. And many people will take this and say, well, you know, we can't be overly precise here. But I would agree with easily the majority of, of scholars and such that would say, no, he is referring to the Exodus. But <clears throat> it is worded in such a way that we can apply these ideas more broadly. So we can talk about a redemption that God brought during the time of the judges, for example. When he raised up Gideon, he redeemed them from their bondage. It applies in that way. Uh, remember, this is book five, so it's after the exile. So God redeemed them from Babylon, too. And then, of course, we can apply it here on this side of the cross. We can look to Christ. God sent Jesus, the Lamb of God. And not just to put blood over our doorposts, but blood over our whole selves. We are washed in the blood of Christ. We are redeemed from the judgment that we deserve. And so we, we can certainly make application this way. And we could even talk about redemptions in smaller ways. But the point is, praise God for it. Whether we're talking about the big ones or the more everyday kinds of redemptions, let's praise our God for redeeming us, sending this, setting us free. All right, now let's look at the second line briefly. Uh, this one begins with the Hebrew letter tzade. That's a T-S sound. Um, so he commanded forever his covenant. All right. Now we had a similar idea back in verse 5. The second line, he is remembering forever his covenant. Remember, the word remember means he's going to act on it. He is acting on his promises. Here now he commanded forever his covenant. Because the initial idea here is focusing on the Exodus, this then would refer to the Mosaic covenant in particular. Okay. So God commanded forever his covenant. Well, if we're talking about the Mosaic covenant, then it's forever, it says, right? But uh, yet we have the book of Hebrews and other places saying, well, that's the old covenant. We now have the new covenant. So how do we put it all together? Well, ultimately, the covenant that God has made with us is the covenant of grace. And that is something that, that the Father, Son, and Spirit uh, basically came up with even before he made anything. And then we see it coming into history in Genesis 3, verse 15 for the first time. And then we see it with the covenant of Noah and then the covenant of Abraham, and then the covenant of Moses, and then the covenant of David, the new covenant promised, and then the new covenant itself. This is the covenant of grace. It's all tied together. God doesn't change his mind from one covenant to another. They're all the same covenant. They just have different aspects, different things that are emphasized. Okay? And so it's eternal. And since Christ has come and kept these terms... Because he has obeyed the covenant for us, because he has taken the punishments we deserve, it continues forever. And so God commanded forever his covenant. The initial point here is the covenant of Moses, but broadly it's referring to the covenant of grace. And so because of this, because God has entered into this relationship with us, we give him praise. 
Right? Can you imagine if God all of a sudden woke up one day and decided, ah, who cares what Jesus did? I mean, wouldn't that just be completely devastating? But God commanded his covenant forever. It's not going to change. This is why Romans 8 is so encouraging to us. Nothing is going to separate us from the love of God, not even God himself. Because he has made this covenant, it is forever, he commanded it, it's not going to change. And so we praise God for this. Now, let me also pause and make a few comments here in this way. Since the initial point here is the Mosaic Covenant, let me say a few comments. Some people will try to claim that the Mosaic Covenant is a works covenant. That if Israel just kept these laws, then they would be blessed and they they could uh, have eternal life or so on and so forth. And now on this side of the cross, all we have to do is believe in Jesus. Things have fundamentally changed. The Mosaic Covenant was a law covenant And now we have a grace covenant and so on and so forth. Well, if that's true, then why is the Mosaic covenant given after the act of redemption? Roughly three months later, God redeemed his people from Egypt and then he gave them the law. It was never intended to be a works covenant. It is a covenant that emphasizes how we should live as God's people But it's not a works covenant. We're not working and earning our way to heaven. Never was intended to be that way. Furthermore, we all know what the sign of the Noahic covenant is, right? It's a rainbow. We all know the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, right? Circumcision. We all know the sign of the new covenant, baptism. What's the sign of the Mosaic covenant? You remember, it's the Sabbath. So how can a works covenant have a sign about rest? It makes no sense. The sign of the Mosaic covenant is to say we are resting in Yahweh. That's why we obey him. It's not that we obey him so we can rest. We're not talking about work salvation. We're talking about grace. The covenant of Moses is just as much a part of the covenant of grace as the covenant of Abraham. We just have different emphases. So, because God has commanded his covenant, even for the believers in the old covenant, it is forever. We rejoice. We praise him. He has saved us. He has set us free so that we can serve him and obey him. So, A few comments here in that way. All right, well, let's look then at the third line in verse 9. Holy and one who is feared is his name. Now, this one begins with the Hebrew letter kof. Uh, it's like a K sound, but it's always a hard k sound here in this case. It's the word kadosh. So holy, holy and one who is feared is his name. All right, now, you remember in verse 4, we had... God made a remembrance, and then we have gracious and compassionate. In verse 3, this deed of his is majesty and splendor, and then his righteousness. 
And do you see the same pattern here in verse 9? A redemption he sent, he commanded a covenant, and now note his character, holy and one who is feared. When you praise God, you praise him for who he is and what he has done. And we see that here in these verses. And so now we move from what he has done, the first two lines, to who he is. He is holy. Now, when we think of holy, we typically think of sinlessness, purity, and that's true. But the primary meaning of holiness actually is to be set apart. What other, uh, other God in the history of mankind has sent redemption to a people? There is none. Allah hasn't done it. Baal hasn't done it. Zeus hasn't done it. Yahweh has. He is the only God who has sent a redemption to redeem a people. He is holy. He is set apart. He is different. The only one who has done this. And so this is why we praise him. Okay. Now the second word here um, I've, I've put here is one who is feared. Uh, the, the Hebrew word, the basic meaning is to fear. New King James says awesome, which is fine. The problem is we tend to use that word very casually today. Okay, you know, you do some, you know, 760 spin on the half pipe. Oh, that was awesome, dude. You know, <clears throat> this has a much more technical meaning here. Okay, and so it has the idea of fear. God alone is to be feared, to be revered, to be honored, to be praised, to be obeyed. And so he is set apart, and he is the only one that we should fear. Not any of these other false so-called gods. Now you'll notice in verse 4, it says, Gracious and compassionate is Yahweh. And now here it says, Holy and one who is feared is his name. Well, God's name is Yahweh. That's his personal name. Now he has other names too, but his primary name is Yahweh. So when we're talking about his name, we think of Yahweh. We think of who he is. He is the existent one. He is the one who has entered into covenant with us. And so his character is, is what we have in mind here. Okay, all of who he is. Now remember, our, our point here in this psalm is to improve our worship. This is a command to worship. Let's worship his name. Now we put it negatively. Don't take his name in vain. Don't come to church here saying that you're going to worship God and sit there and not worship God. You're not obeying the command. You're taking his name in vain if you do not worship him when you gather here for worship. Okay. And so it's not just cursing or swearing. It's when we say we love God and then we do the exact opposite. That's taking his name in vain. That's being indifferent. All right, well, let's keep going then to verse 10. And turn your paper over here. <clears throat> the beginning of wisdom is the fear of Yahweh, a good understanding for all those who are doing them. His praise is standing forever. Again, like verse 9 here, we have three lines in the verse. Note again, we have four words or three words in the Hebrew. Um, and so it's following that pattern. 
And uh, so we come in the first line to the next Hebrew letter, which is Resh. Again, I've made it bigger for you. This is the R sound. So the beginning is how we translate that word. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of Yahweh. Now, we just talked about fearing God in verse 9. Now he expands on that here. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of Yahweh. If you're going to be wise, you're going to revere God. You're going to honor him. You're going to respect him. You're going to be humble before him. But you're also then going to obey him and do what he says. To fear the Lord means not just, God, I honor you. Hey, I have respect and humility, but I'm going to then do what you say. And again, in this context, the primary thing we're supposed to do is to worship him. And so... If you are wise, if you fear God, you will worship. And that's ultimately the wisest thing that we can do. Now, uh, as we come to this line, all of a a sudden, things kind of shift. Everything that we've seen so far has been focusing on what God has done and who he is. And now it's focusing on us, which takes us back to verse 1, the command to worship. But it also is going to anticipate for us Psalm 112. And the idea of fearing God is the, the, the primary point of Psalm 112. So that's why it's here. Okay. <clears throat> and so I'll expand on that and elaborate on that next time. All right, let's look then at the second line here. It begins with the Hebrew letter sin or shin. It can be either one. This one is the sin. Now we're not talking about sinning. It's just the name of the letter. And it's an S sound here. So a good understanding for all of those who are doing them. So if you fear Yahweh, you have wisdom. If you do whatever these things are, you have a good understanding. So what is the antecedent of them? Well, as I mentioned here and as I've mentioned before, it takes us back to verse 7. His works, which especially emphasize his precepts, his commands. So simply, if we do God's law, we are wise. If we do what he says, we have understanding, good understanding. And so, so many of the Proverbs say this, Psalm 1 says this, Psalm 119 says this, and so forth. Again, I'll elaborate on these points in, in the next Psalm. But do you see the point? We must obey this command to worship. I keep harping on this, but this is the whole point. If we have understanding, if we have wisdom, we will strive to improve our worship. And so it's no surprise then that the last line of the psalm returns us to that point. His praise is standing forever. The last letter in the Hebrew alphabet is tau. It's a T sound. It can be also a TH sound. So his praise is is standing forever. Now, as I've said, verse 1 is a call to worship. You remember what I said here a couple weeks ago, that, that uh, the psalmist uses two words for praise. Hallelujah is the first one, and that's kind of, if you will, the general word for praise. It also then, uh, in, the, in the, the next line there, says about let me praise. That's a different word. It's the word yada. We get the name Judah from it. 
And that can include giving thanks, not just praising. It can include confessing our faith. Well, now we have a third word. This word for praise is different than those first two. And this one can have the idea of singing. So when we praise our God, we praise him with our words. When we praise our God, we're also thanking him for who he is and what he has done. When we praise our God, we are confessing our faith in him. And when we praise our God, it includes singing. Right? Remember there at the beginning, we are delighting in these things. Well, that often leads us then to song. And so it's almost without thinking anymore. If you just ask somebody, what does it mean to worship God? Usually they think of singing, right? Praise and worship or something like that, right? It's more than singing, but it certainly includes it. And this is the word that, that would emphasize that. And so his praise is standing or enduring forever. How is it enduring forever? Well, because God endures forever, but that's not the point. God's praise endures forever because God's people praise him forever. Okay, we come together for an hour or so on Sunday morning and Sunday evening to praise our God. Okay, but that's just the beginning. We are to praise God in everything that we do. What we are doing now is preparing us for an eternity of praise. So, let me tie all this together, okay, in these three ways. First of all, when we remember God's great works, especially his works of redemption, when we delight in those works, when we study them and understand them better, when we focus on God's character, when we focus on his work of redemption, especially his covenant, the promised land, the heavenly promised land especially, when we focus on his law, when we focus on his name, and how none of these things are sinful, none of these things change. Okay. What other response should we give but to praise him? We fear him, we obey him, we praise him now and forevermore. And so from A to Z, or in Hebrew, it's Aleph to Tau, right? We are praising Yahweh for who he is and what he has done. And when we do, this is wisdom. And when we do, right, it results in blessings. And so the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, the second thing to call to our attention to bring it all together is this. Look at verse 3 a moment. Look at the last word in the verse, forever. <coughs> in verse 5, in the second line, we have the word forever. Okay. In verse 8, in the first line, we have forever and ever. In verse 9, in the middle, ver middle line, it says, he commanded forever. And then the last word in the psalm is forever. Five times this word is used. Clearly, this is an emphasis. Okay? God is forever. His character is forever. His ways are forever. 
His covenant is forever. His laws are forever. His grace is forever in redemption. None of that is going to change for the people of God. And so may our praise of him be forever. Every moment of every day, we talk about praying without ceasing. Let's praise without ceasing. Let's prepare for an eternity. And so this call to worship in verse 1 is developed in this way. Yes, this psalm emphasizes Israel. Yes, it emphasizes the nation of Israel. Yes, it's calling us back to the Exodus. But we certainly can make application as we think of God's redemption in Christ. This is the basis of our worship. And then lastly, let's return us then to the emphasis here, which is not just our responsibility to worship, but the object of our worship. In verse 2, his works are great. In verse 3, his deed is glorious or splendorous, majestic. He is righteous. In verse 4, God is gracious and compassionate. In verse 7, he is truth and faithful, reliable, trustworthy. His laws are just. They are steadfast, verse 8. They are upright, verse 8. God is holy. God is awesome. This is not true of any other God. So let's praise him for who he is and what he has done. Let us do it corporately here. Go home and do it on your own. He is worthy of it. All right. Well, a few words here then in regard to Psalm 111. We'll look at the parallel psalm beginning, Lord willing, next week. Let's pray together. <clears throat> our Father and our God, we um, just truly marvel at uh, who you are. Uh, we, we are amazed at, at the things that you have done. We, we struggle to, to comprehend your character and your being. And though we can wrap our minds around a little better the things that you have done, especially to redeem us, even that is beyond our, our ability to, to fully comprehend. But regardless, as your word says here in this psalm, we praise you. We lift up your name. We exalt you. For you are the only true and living God. You're the only God has redeemed a people. And that, for some reason, includes us. And it's certainly not because we deserve it. And so we praise you, our God. We thank you. We confess our faith in you. And we have sung and will sing here again our praises to you. Lord, we we ask then that by your spirit, that we wouldn't just fill our minds with these ideas, but may it impact everything that we do. May our life be a life of praise and thanksgiving. For you are worthy of, of it all. So Lord, please help us to improve our worship and not rely on excuses and, and our busyness and this, that, and the other. But may we prepare ourselves for an eternity of praising you.
for again, you alone are worthy of it. And so we pray for these things, for your honor and glory, and the extension of your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.